you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament, Ruth, chapter 1. I know many have decided not to watch the NFL anymore following their uh, political stances of the past couple of years, but tonight is the Super Bowl. And one of the great things about the Super Bowl is you get some great commercials. So I was thinking about the commercials that I, uh, some of the commercials that I enjoy, uh, especially related to this sermon this morning. And, and one of the ones that kept coming to mind was the Sour Patch Kids commercials. You know, they, they always start off with the Sour Patch Kids going and doing something that is mean, or as they call it, sour. And... Then, after they've done something mean, they come and do something really sweet. And it just reminds me of my own kids. Because <laughs> sometimes they'll do something that you're like, why did you do that? That wasn't nice. And then they'll turn around and be so sweet. Well, the slogan for Sour Patch Kids is, first they're sour, then they're sweet. Well, today we're going to unpack a story where that slogan moves in the opposite direction. Literally translated, the name Naomi means sweet or pleasant, but at the end of this chapter, we'll see that she wants to be called Mara instead, and Mara means bitter. So what causes Naomi to go from being sweet to being bitter? Well, we'll find out in just a moment as we read together the whole of Ruth chapter 1. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would penetrate our hearts, penetrate our minds, and crush our spirits so that we may understand the great lament that Naomi experienced and that we may understand the great need that we have for a great Savior. So, Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes that we may see. And, Lord, that you would empower me as your messenger to come and to proclaim this message in boldness and in power and in truth. Lift up this prayer to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Look with me at Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. During the time of the judges... There was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her children and without her husband. Naomi experiences this 
idea of moving from the frying pan into the fire. Now, that we use that phrase to mean they've gone from a bad situation into a worse situation. So let's take a look and examine this in further detail. We open by the author giving us the setting of the story, the time and the place of what is happening here. And he says, normally as we're looking at history, we're looking at the kings and the leaders of the country. But we zoom in on this man from Bethlehem. Now at this time, Bethlehem was not what we would know it to be today, the great place of the birth of the Savior. It wasn't even the, the place yet of the birth of the great King David. But at this time, it's just a small town about five and a half miles south of Jerusalem that really has no significance. And he says it is the time of the judges, meaning that at this time in history, Israel has no king. The people of Israel were living in what we would consider an early Republican style of government. They were not led by a man, but rather, what marks a republic is that you're led by law. And so they weren't led by a man, a king, they were led by God's law. Much as like we today are not led by a single man, we are led by the Constitution, and our leader has to abide by the Constitution. The problem with this setup of government is that people don't always follow the law. And so for our government, we have the executive branch, the president and, and the various agencies that fall under him, and the police that come and enforce the law. Well, for the nation of Israel, Yahweh himself, God himself, was the executive branch. He was the one who made the law, but he was also the one who ensured that they stuck to the law, that they lived in obedience to the law. And so when the people were not living in the fear of the Lord, and when they were not living in obedience to his law, he would bring chastisement upon them, he would bring punishment upon them, through famines and plagues and sometimes drought or enemies coming and invading them and to drive Israel to repentance, to drive them to come back and say, I have broken God's law. And they would repent of it and call out to God for deliverance and he would raise up a judge. And we see a total of 12 times that God has raised up a judge to go and to deliver his people during the time of the judges. So they only needed a judge to deliver them after they had been living in disobedience. Well, in this story, we find that the people of Israel are under a time of God's wrath. Well, how do we know that? Well, they had invaded the land of Canaan, a land that God had promised them, calling it the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, at this time, there was great famine in the land. And so this, this man, this common man, not a king, not a judge, just a normal family, this man and his wife and his two sons, they look at the situation around them, 
during this land, uh, this time of where the land is under God's judgment. And he says, I can't provide for my family here. And so he decided to take his wife and his two sons to another land, the land of Moab. Now, there are some problems with that. First of all, by leaving Israel and going to another land, they've forsaken the promised land. They've forsaken God's holy place. And so, sure, they may have intended to come back, but they left from Israel and went into Moab. And in going to Moab, they had to travel to the east. And if you look throughout the scriptures, there's this constant idea of man traveling east. Think about this. In in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are driven out of the the Garden of Eden, driven east. And God places an angel with a sword to, to prevent them from returning west. There's a separation. And then we read of the story of Cain and Abel, and, and Cain murders his brother. And God comes to him and says, Cain, what have you done? And, and Cain is proud and haughty, and he, he says, what, Am I my brother's keeper? And he's exiled and driven east. And then throughout Genesis, we see this constant movement to the east. And that signifies this movement away from God. So when they leave to go to Moab, they have to travel east, further away, movement away from God. So Elimelech has moved his family east to the land of Moab. And further, we understand the nation of Moab to be an idolatrous and pagan nation. Moab was named after the oldest son of Lot, who was born by incest with his oldest daughter. Moab began, it was conceived in sin, and it continued in its sin, and it worshipped as its god, the false god, Chemosh. And scripture tells us that Chemosh demanded human sacrifice. Other sources indicate that worship of Chemosh included not just human sacrifice, but orgies in his temple. And so the very nature of Moab and, and its identity as a nation was against Israel and their identity with this holiness of God. And in fact, we find that Israel and Moab were often great enemies of one another. And so this Israelite man had left from the holy nation of Israel to go into the land, the pagan sinful nation of Moab, and chose there to settle his family. Friends, let me tell you this. It's better to be hungry in the will of the Lord than it is to, be, to have a full stomach and to be out of his will. It's better to suffer the Lord's wrath and to repent and turn back to him than it is to seek to escape by turning to the things of this world. You know, when, when one of our children has been disobedient in some way, what we want is for them to fess up, to say, 
yes, I did this disobedient act, and I'm sorry, and I want to deal with the consequences of that. But if they instead seek to lie about it, or they seek to hide it, or they seek to run away from their, their discipline, it only makes things worse. And, well, we find this is what happens with Elimelech. For while they were in Moab, he died and left his wife Naomi a widow. So for Naomi, things have already gone from bad to worse. But she looks and says, I still have my two sons. And they have grown and they go out and they marry Moabite women. But before too long, both of her sons also die without leaving an heir, without providing a grandchild for her. And so while Elimelech thought that he was helping his family escape from God's judgment, instead he finds that life just keeps getting worse and worse for his widow. So now Naomi is in a tough spot. She already has no husband to provide for her. So she was relying on those two sons to take care of her in her old age. There was no social security during that time. She had very few rights and resources as a widow. So what was she to do? She had no native Israelite family there in Moab. All she had was two young Moabite widows who were looking to her for guidance. What should she do? Look at verse 6. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And she said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. So she's left with this question of, should I stay or should I go now? Right? In ancient Near East societies, foreigners were particularly vulnerable because they had no protections. In fact, we find in, in the law of of Israel that there are actually some protections for foreigners and that was abnormal for most nations. And so when Naomi is left with nothing in the land of Moab, she has no protections, she's completely vulnerable. And word comes to her that the famine in Israel has ended, the Lord's judgment has ceased and he's brought blessing upon the people. She makes the decision I'm going to go back home. But that leaves the question, what about my daughters-in-law? Should they stay here in the land of Moab, or should they go with me to Israel? 
Now, Naomi understood the same reason that she should leave Moab because she's a vulnerable foreign widow is the exact same reason that these Moabite widows should not go with her to Israel because they have, as foreigners, very little protection in the land of Israel. They had few rights, if any. Furthermore, the the travel back to Israel was going to be treacherous. Uh, I have a map here so we can see the, the route that they would take from Moab. They'd have to cross the river Arnon, go through the plains of Moab, which is kind of a, a false description because along the Dead Sea there's a great mountain range. So they'd have to travel around this mountain range, around this salty Dead Sea, up north, and then cross the River Jordan. And then they would make their way around to Jerusalem and down to Bethlehem. What this map doesn't show is how mountainous and how rugged this terrain is. And this group of widowed women would would have to travel 50 miles across mountain ranges, the Dead Sea, the Jordan. Remember, there were no modern conveniences. These women would have to ford the rivers themselves because they were now poor widowed women they likely did not have a pack animal to ride so they were more than likely making this trip on foot and if all went well they were looking at nearly two weeks to to travel from Moab to Israel to Bethlehem These three widowed women alone. So, why should these Israelite, or sorry, why should these Moabite women go to Israel? For the, the way there would be difficult. And when they get there, they have no hope of rights, no hope of being treated well. Why should they go? So Naomi, knowing nothing but sorrow at this point and seeing no hope for them in Israel, sought to send them back to their people in Moab. Yet what great love they must have experienced in that family. For both women initially refuse her and insist that we're going to take this tough journey with you There must have been something about Naomi and about her family that that stood out to these women, that makes them different from the people of Moab, for them to say, I'm going to forsake my land and travel with you across this rugged, mountainous terrain to a land where I have no guarantee of a husband. I have no guarantee of anything good, only scorn and mockery. Why should they go? But they shared such a strong bond, they refused to leave her side. Yet, if Naomi lived up to her name, this sweet, kind woman, perhaps it was this very kindness that prompts her to appeal yet again to her daughters-in-law to stop this trip with her, to return home to the land of Moab. Look at verse 11. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. 
Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me, and so again they wept loudly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So we see that one of these women, one of these foreigners, faltered in following after her. When the initial gentle urging of Naomi was insufficient to turn them away, she demonstrated the reasoning for her insistence on their return. She says, there's no hope for you with me. I can provide nothing for you. There's no hope for the future. I'm too old to remarry. And even if I did and I had kids tonight, would you wait until they were of marrying age? No, you would be much too old for them and they far too young for you. So physically speaking, it would be much better for you to return to the land of Moab to to marry into another family and to resume your life as a Moabitess. But notice that she places all of her bitterness. She places all of the trouble that she's experienced directly on the Lord. It is the Lord whose hand has turned against me. She says, there's no hope for you, for I am a woman under judgment. I'm a woman under God's wrath. God is against me. I have no hope for you. And at this time, her urging causes one of the women named Orpah to falter in her conviction And she began to consider the situation, the difficulty of the travel, the lack of hope on an arrival in Bethlehem, the lack of a future for her in a land removed from her family. And she decides, you know what, you're right. I'm going to go back. So Orpah, at the urging of this supposedly godly woman, returns to the land of Moab, returns to its false god, returns to the worship that involves orgies and, and human sacrifice. She returns to Moab. Oh, Naomi, what were you thinking? Was your sorrow so great that you would condemn your daughter-in-law? Was your future so bleak that you would return to Kamash. She was on her way to the promised land, but because of the great sorrow of Naomi, she turned her back. She was more concerned with kindness than with godliness. So Orpah returned to the land of sin. Friends, you, you must ensure that We seek to be kind, yes? 
Scripture tells us that we are to be kind, but we must also understand that kindness and godliness are not always the same thing. Sometimes it's better to be godly than it is to be kind. And we are godly in love, but here we kindness says, I don't want to cause you pain. But godliness understands that sometimes pain is better because it brings the greater blessing. It's much better to be godly than to be kind, especially if your kindness may cost someone their eternal blessing of the Lord. It's much better to say, listen, I know that this is going to hurt. I know that you are living in sin. I know that you like your sin, but you need to turn away from it, and you need to turn to the Lord. We don't want to tell people, hey, you are a sinner, and you need to repent, but we must in the name of godliness, in the name of ultimate kindness, do so. And so, Naomi says to Orpah, go back. She says to Ruth, go back. Orpah says, I'm going to go back. But Ruth says, I'm staying with you. Ruth perhaps had a greater understanding of the Lord than Naomi did, for she clung to Naomi. And notice her response to her, this great passage that we read in verse 15. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or to go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. So we saw the, the faltering foreigner, and now we see the faithful one, the faithful foreigner. Now, many of you are probably familiar with verses 16 and 17. We often use those in that, that passage in weddings to speak of the great relationship between a man and his wife. But notice it's not actually spoken between a married couple. It's spoken between a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. Now, most biblical scholars would agree with me, uh, notice it's that way and not the other way around, uh, that this confession of Ruth signifies that Ruth has a conversion experience. That she says, I'm going to place my faith in Yahweh. I'm going to become a member of Israel. I'm converting from being a Moabitess to being an Israelite, even though to much of, of Israel, they're going to still see her as a Moabite woman for some time. But she confessed the Israelites to be her people. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She confessed Yahweh as her God. And she refused to abandon Naomi. She understood that her duty to both her dead husband 
and to her living mother-in-law was to find some way, if possible, to provide for them, to provide an heir in some way, even though there was no hope at this point of finding that. So while Naomi and her, her family of Israelites had consistently demonstrated a weak faith to the Lord, Ruth's was strong, and she desired to follow the true God, to abandon her heathen lifestyle. She, despite Naomi's practical yet unspiritual direction, Ruth's steadfast decision was, I am going to Israel. I am joining them in worship of their God. She converted. And in that conversion, we'll find that there is hope in a hopeless situation. Look with me at verse 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem, and when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we, we've kind of had this condensed history at the beginning, and then we see this expansion on this, this situation as they're traveling. We, we spent five verses setting up what happened. We spent another, what, 16 verses speaking about this conversation between them. And then we get another five verses or so here at the end that say, hey, this is what happened after they got there. So we've, we've fast-forwarded to the end of their journey. These two widowed women have now arrived in Bethlehem. It's now ten years or, or perhaps a little bit longer after Naomi had originally left. And the whole town is abuzz. Could this possibly be Naomi? What a change in her. She left with a husband and sons hoping for a new life of prosperity in Moab. Her return has no sign of success. For she comes on foot and in the company of, of a Moabitess. And these two have all the marks of poverty. So perhaps the question, can this be Naomi, was asked with an, an air of superiority. The other women had remained in Bethlehem. They had faced the, the challenges of the famine. And they had come out all right. They had endured the wrath of God. They had repented as a nation. And God had brought blessing back on them. And, and everything worked out fine. Perhaps they were casting judgment upon her for leaving. And that certainly, I think, seems to be the case. For Look at how Naomi responds. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. 
For I'm no longer sweet, but bitter, very bitter, because the Lord has pronounced judgment on me and has afflicted me. Why is she bitter? Because God has been working on her. God has has left her feeling empty. He's brought her in her pride and her determination to go into this foreign land, this ungodly nation. He says, listen, that was wrong. I'm bringing you to repentance by taking away all that you have. And you know, sometimes that's the way God works with us. Sometimes we we want to be so prideful and, and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I can do it myself. I can get a better job. I can do the training. I, I can do what needs to be done to provide for my family. I can take care of us. But we can't. Our pride gets in the way, and sometimes God just has to break us so that we can understand and be prepared to turn to Him. He he has to break us. He has to make us empty. He has to empty us of our pride. And so she returns embittered, depressed, and cast down because the Lord has afflicted her. She's at the lowest place that she's known. So she's returned from, from Moab embarrassed and broken. And you know, as American Christians, we don't like the idea that God would place his hand against us. We don't like the idea that God may cause something bad to, to come against us. In fact, I, I've found that most American Christians that I have conversations with have a theology that says God only allows bad things to happen. He doesn't cause them. But that's not what the Bible teaches. He, he placed his hand against Naomi. In the, if you look at the whole book of the Bible, there's a whole book of lament. We call it Lamentations. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Because Jerusalem, the, the nation's capital, the place where the temple was established, that was being destroyed because God's hand was against them. They had been living in sin, and so God brought punishment upon them. And the nation watched as, as territory fell to enemy, and then, and then Jerusalem itself became embattered and in, in battle. And eventually it fell. And so Jeremiah the prophet's watching all this, and he's, he's thinking, oh, how terrible this is, but he understands at the same time that it is because God is afflicting them because of their sin, and we don't like that. We don't like that God's wrath is just as real as God's loving kindness. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. And I think because of that, we become stunted in our spiritual lives. We, we don't allow ourselves to experience the great depths of human emotion that God has, has created within us. When we start to feel bad as Americans, what do we do? I'm feeling depressed. I go to the doctor and tell him I feel depressed. Here's a prescription. You're not going to feel depressed anymore. We don't experience the lament like Naomi. We don't experience the lament like Jeremiah. We need to understand that She's correct. God is the one who's made her bitter. Yet we must also understand 
Even in the midst of our great sadness, even in the midst of our despair, God is there. And God hears our mourning even before our hearts turn to Him. We need a great bitterness. We need lament. We need brokenness in our lives. Not that I'm wishing for more bitterness, but we need to learn how to properly lament. We need to, to be broken by God on our sin. We need to lament over it. We need to, to be broken because of how we have rebelled against Him and broken His law. And that needs to, to prompt us to repentance and to turn away from that sin and to turn to Christ. Because even when we see the great sin, I, I was hearing a story this week of, of how uh, even back in, in the uh, early 17th century, there was uh, this great revivalism that was taking place. And, and, and they, the, there was always this call to understand your sin and to be broken because of your sin. And, and this one guy became so broken over his sin, so depressed because of how unrighteous of a creature he understood himself to be, that he decided there was no hope, and so he committed suicide. Now, I'm not advocating that by any means. We must be broken, but we must also understand that there's a great hope. There's great hope in our, even in our hopelessness. Even when we understand that there's nothing righteous about us, there's nothing that can save us from our sin except for one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great hope. Jesus brings us salvation. For Naomi, we see the great hope that is foreshadowed in the last couple of verses of chapter 1. Notice she came back from the land of Moab. All she has left with her is a Moabite woman. But they returned to the land of the Lord, the land of Israel, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that barley harvest and that Moabite woman will turn Naomi's hopeless, bitter situation into one of hope and joy. So if this were a movie, I would, I would see Naomi walking in and saying, Hey, look at me, I'm, I'm bitter, for the Lord has been against me. And I would pan out on that scene, showing Ruth and the ripe heads of the barley. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're, or you're hearing this message online and, and you're, you've been going through a tough situation. Maybe COVID has left you feeling abandoned. Maybe you're at home right now watching this online and you're alone. Maybe you're here and you've lost your job. Maybe because of COVID, maybe something else. And so you're suffering economically. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe this has caused you to be bitter and depressed. And maybe you're thinking, I'm going through this tough situation. I thought God loved me. Why is he allowing me to go through this? But maybe he's using this situation to break you to mold you, to prepare you to become 
closer to him, to draw you to himself. Maybe God's breaking you because often in our weakness is an opportunity for God to perform a startling redemption. See, the truth is God sees, he understands, and he wants to enter into our mourning. And he wants you to learn to trust him and in your suffering and in all areas of life. For there is hope in the hopeless situation that Jesus Christ, who came, who suffered himself, who was crucified on a cross and died and was buried, he didn't remain there. He rose on the third day having power over death, and he holds the keys to Hades. And he makes that power available to you and me if we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Jesus is our living hope. Have you placed your faith and your hope in him today? Would you stand with me as we have a time of invitation, a time to respond to the word of the Lord. I hope this story has touched your heart. I know we've all dealt with various afflictions. But understand, God works in those times. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the story of Ruth and Naomi. Lord God, as we continue to study this, I pray that you would continue to open our minds and our hearts to understand you better. Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that's, that's broken because of their sin, that's broken because of their situation, that they would understand that you're using that to provide redemption, to, to prompt to, to return and to, to turn to you in faith. Won't you empower them, embolden them to come to you today? For salvation is found only in the name of Jesus the Christ. <clears throat> the Son of the living God. Lord, have your way.